Hello everyone, it's Nico here. I just want to take a moment to thank you all for your feedback on our last episode featuring Daryl Davis. We heard from a number of you who were inspired by Daryl's story of using dialogue to transcend differences and defeat racism. If you were one of the people who enjoyed that episode, I want to take a moment to ask you to please consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. This helps us draw new listeners to the show who might similarly be moved by Daryl's message. It's the easiest thing you can do to help us get more ears on this podcast. Now, if for some reason you haven't listened to the last episode yet, I highly encourage you to do so. You might notice that that episode has a different feel from some of our more straightforward interview shows, and that's purposeful. Every quarter or so, Aaron Reese, our editor, and I try to put together a highly produced show, like the Daryl Davis show, that tells a powerful story in some unique way. Last year, we put together one of these types of shows on Flying Dog Brewery's battle against beer label censorship. We don't know what our next highly produced podcast episode will be about yet, but if you have a suggestion, please send it our way. We can always be reached at so to speak at thefire.org. Again, that's so to speak at thefire.org. Also, if you can't get enough of Daryl, we have a bonus clip of our interview with him available on our Facebook and Twitter pages. As you heard during the full episode with Daryl, Daryl is a piano player who played in Chuck Berry's band for 32 years. And if you followed the news recently, Chuck passed away this past weekend. If you roll on over to our Facebook and Twitter pages, you can hear what Daryl had to say about Chuck and Chuck's legacy as the godfather of rock and roll. But for now, let's get on to our show. Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. New technologies and censorship, unfortunately, seem to go hand in hand. From the first days of the printing press, to the rise of radio, to the advent of the internet, New technological innovations in mass communication are often followed by a fear of what will happen if these new means of communication are left unrestricted, or should I say, uncensored. To discuss how new developments in communication technology are often met with calls for censorship, we're joined today by a longtime friend of FIRE's, Bob Corn Revere. To say Bob is an expert on these matters would be an understatement. He's a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Davis Wright Tremaine, where he specializes in First Amendment, Internet, and communications law, and he's been involved in litigating some of the biggest cases involving the regulation of new communications technologies. One such case was the landmark Supreme Court case from 2000 called United States v. Playboy Entertainment Group, in which portions of the Telecommunications Act of 1996 were struck down as a violation of the First Amendment. He also represented CBS Television and Viacom in the famed Super Bowl 38 Janet Jackson Nipplegate controversy. But Bob has experience on the other side of these issues, too, where he previously served as chief counsel and a legal advisor within the Federal Communications Commission. Nearest and dearest to our hearts, however, is Bob and his DWT colleagues' work representing plaintiffs in FIRE's Stand Up for Speech litigation project where Bob and his colleagues are thus far 
undefeated in protecting student and faculty rights in court. On Wednesday, March 15th, I traveled down to D.C. to speak with Bob about the intersection of new technologies and censorship and his unique experiences on the front lines litigating these cutting-edge First Amendment issues. Here is our conversation. Bob, thanks for coming on the show. Happy to. Um, We seem to be on the cusp of an era of profound technological innovation. Uh, We're talking a lot. It seems like there isn't a day that goes by that I don't see some sort of story about artificial intelligence or in the video game world, uh, virtual reality. I live in midtown Manhattan and there's this Sony store and they just came out with this new product that allows you to do some really cool immersive things with video games. You have long argued that the phrase goes, censorship is the bastard child of technology. Can you explain that general theory? Or to put it another way, why should free speech advocates pay close attention to new technological innovations? Well, I think the main reason that free speech advocates should pay attention to technology is that it has always been part of the story of free expression. If you go back to the printing press, I mean, the printing press was the new technology of uh, the framers' generation. I mean, obviously, it had been around for hundreds of years before that. But when they were first writing down the rules of the relationship between government and communication, they had the press as a mass communications technology in mind. And so as cases began to interpret what the First Amendment meant throughout the 20th century, beginning around 1919 and so on, uh, they had to confront what it meant when you were dealing with even newer communications technologies beyond the printing press. And so technology has always been a part of this push and pull between government and free expression. Yeah, and going even before that, I mean, you talk about uh, the Gutenberg Bible and the Reformation, and I was a uh, history major in college, and I specialized in Renaissance and ancient history. A little factoid there for our listeners. Uh, (laughs) But it seemed that there was a discussion even then about there was this fear among those in power that this new access to information would uh, corrupt the masses, so to speak, especially from a a religious standpoint. You know, there was no longer this gatekeeper. Exactly. I mean, it used to be that books were written individually by scribes, and so they were under the control of the church. So that when the press came along and Gutenberg could print the Bible separately, it meant that there was possible now the mass dissemination of information that didn't have to go through a central authority, which is one of the reasons why uh, one of the first reactions of the Crown was to develop licensing systems for the press. So this is John would Milton, be, Ari- Ariopagitica. Exactly. So there would be that kind of centralized authority. And as newer technologies came along, you saw again, recurrent themes of governments trying to, to restrict uh, the, the means of conveying information. So, for example, if you go back to uh, the early 20th century, it was either 1909 or, or 1906, one or the other, where Scientific American had an article about Turkey trying to prohibit the importation of typewriters <laughs> into Turkey because they allowed not just the communication of messages in a more efficient way, but they could do so anonymously. And so, uh, again, it was an effort to try and exert control. I want, I want to go through a couple of these historical innovations to talk about the regimes of censorship that may or may not have been built up 
around them. We talked, of course, about the Gutenberg Bible and the licensing of pamphlets or books uh, in England. But movies, I mean, there Mm -hmm. was a big regime of censorship surrounding movies. And you might know more about this than me, but you had Hayes Code, which I think was more of not a government. Right. The Hayes Code was a private reaction to try and forestall more government censorship, which is something that often happens. And again, the push and pull between private actors and government actors. But the the cinema was one of those uh, watershed developments that affected censorship in a couple of different ways. For one thing, it spoke to youth culture, and that has historically been something that has prompted reactions from government authorities. Well, you have that with comic books, too. Absolutely. Comic books, jazz music, uh, um, movies. Uh, before that, uh, the, uh, the dime novels, uh, the penny dreadfuls, which were theater presentations in, in England that uh, focused on uh, horrific events and 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 um, scandal and crime and things like that. I mean, it, it's been a recurring theme in a series of moral panics up until you get to video games, and I'm sure virtual reality will will have the same kind of reaction. But uh, cinema w- prompted a, a special case because the first time the Supreme Court had to deal with whether or not films were covered by the First Amendment, predated the time in which the court had found anything was protected by the First Amendment. This was 1915, 1915 in the mutual film case, that's right. Mm -hmm. And it was looking at whether or not states could adopt censorship boards to go after uh, films that didn't meet whatever the standards were going to be. It was at a time when Anthony Comstock, well, actually, oddly enough, 1915 was the year that Anthony Comstock died. He was the father of modern American censorship. He, the name for the federal anti-obscenity law was known as the Comstock Law uh, in his name. Um, the uh, um, regime that it adopted applied fully to anything in interstate commerce, which included films. Um, but independently, states would adopt censorship boards that would decide whether or not films could be shown within their jurisdiction. And uh, the mutual film case was the first time that regime was tested. And it was also a time in which you could see the court grappling not just with the meaning of the First Amendment, because it had not yet been interpreted by the Supreme Court and wouldn't be for another 15 or 16 years, uh, or wouldn't be in a way that where the court found a speech interest to be protected. In addition to the basic free speech issue, you also had the question of whether or not this weird new technology, this threatening technology, uh, would be protected. And the court looked at it and said, well, no, this isn't really what we mean by press. Uh, It's a commercial entity, and by the way, we think it's probably a little dangerous. And so uh, it said that film was entirely unprotected under the First Amendment. And that that decision was eventually reversed? It was reversed 37 years later uh, by the Supreme Court. There was first the Paramount Paramount Pictures case and then the Joseph Burston uh, case uh, in which the uh, the court held that uh, you couldn't enforce uh, blasphemy laws <laughs> against motion pictures, um, but it held as well that film is as protected as other media. Now, it took another several decades for the court to clarify that this also meant that the, f- the state censorship boards had to go. Uh, there was a, a case in the mid-1960s um, uh, Friedman versus Maryland, which struck down uh, the state licensing board. And it still took several decades before the final local film censorship board 
uh, finally vanished. It was in 1991. The last one that existed was in Dallas. Wow. And this Hayes Code that I mentioned mm-hmm. before, this motion picture production code, was set up by the industry, you say, in response to attempts at government censorship, This, so that they could essentially say to the government, you don't need to worry about this. We're we're keeping taking care of our own house. That's right. This was an example of industry self-regulation. Uh, it was done because uh, various uh, politicians and, and uh, lawmakers had uh, leaned on the film industry, and, and also the executives saw which way the, the wind was blowing and took it upon themselves to adopt a code. You now have the phenomenon, if you, if you look back at classic films and you see pre-code movies that were a bit racier, dealt with uh, uh, more adult topics, uh, and then post-code movies, which were, uh, were more sanitized, uh, it's an interesting phenomenon in our history. You see the same thing with comic books. You see the same thing with uh, regulation of television and radio. Um, you know, technology has always been part of that story. Yeah. And around the same time that you had this discussion about cinema's intersection with the First Amendment or with free speech, uh, depending on whether you're talking about government censorship or industry censorship, um, you had the advent or the popularization of radio. That's right. Uh, and you got the first licensing scheme, if I'm not mistaken, in 1934? Well, the first one came in 1927. Uh, the Radio Act of 1927 was adopted uh, at the um, basically as radio was really becoming extremely popular. It had been something that had really started right before the 1920s. There had been various attempts by industry to try and organize itself to prevent things like interference between stations and so on. There was a licensing regime that existed for radio, but it was not one that could really be enforced. And so around 1926, you had a decision from, uh, I believe, the D.C. Circuit, saying that uh, the federal um, regime governing radio, uh, you could grant licenses, but you couldn't take them away. Uh, And that then prompted Congress to get off the dime and adopt the Radio Act of 1927. That was a precursor to what became the Communications Act of 1934. Uh, And 34 was really just a consolidation of federal codes that governed telephone communication, radio communication, and so on. And so it consolidated the various aspects of communications regulation. Was the FCC founded around this? You're an, you're a veteran of the FCC, right? I, I did work at the FCC for four years. I was legal advisor to Commissioner Coelho and then served as his chief counsel when he was chairman. Uh, and, and it is when, when the uh, FCC was adopted. There was before that the Federal Radio Commission under the Radio Act, and then when the Um, the Communications Act in 1934 was adopted, it became the Federal Communications Commission. And the the argument for some of the regulations or or, or licensing of radio was this idea of frequency scarcity, if I'm not correct. Well, yeah, that was the notion. Um, But when you really think about it, the scarcity of frequencies for broadcasting was government-created. You're really talking about a physical property of uh, the electromagnetic, spec- electromagnetic spectrum and the, be able, the ability to use that for, um, uh, for purposes of communication, for transmitting information. Um, but only a fraction of the available spectrum uh, is used for broadcasting, and yeah. a lot of it is used for other uses. And so when you talk about um, uh, scarcity of the airwaves and <laughs> Side note, there ain't no such thing as an airwave. Uh, but when you're talking about scarcity in the electromagnetic spectrum, you're really talking about 
a limitation on the number of frequencies allocated to this particular service. And what you're even within that, what you're really talking about is having some regime to make sure that people don't interfere with each other's usages of the electromagnetic spectrum. Little known fact is that in 1926, the common law started trying to grapple with that. And there was a state court decision from Illinois, uh, Chicago Tribune versus Oak Leaves Broadcasting Company, that began to recognize property interests um, among people who'd been using the, the electromagnetic spectrum. So had this property regime been worked out through further legal development, then you would have seen a way for lawfully for people to um, uh, claim priority of usage of, of spectrum and in that way um, prevent the, the interference between signals. But what they, that did, it was one of the things that prompted Congress to also look at whether or not they needed to nationalize the the system. And that was one of the things that led to passage of the 1927 Radio Act. Yeah, what were some of the, so the electromagnetic spectrum, what were some of the other things that were being used on that spectrum? So you say you know, media, radio, or TV, for example. Well, there was, there was uh, private radio and shortwave, uh, shortwave radio. Uh, military uses are, are um, highly significant. I mean, a, a lot of uh, the current spectrum is allocated to, to that and other government uses. Um, but again, if you look at a, a frequency chart, you'll see that the amount allocated for broadcasting is really uh, the minority of, of the available spectrum out mm -hmm. there. So you think there might have been more... Do you believe there might have been more innovation in radio had the common law been able to develop it? Well, what's interesting is that if you look at those early days of radio, you saw a lot of experimentation, uh, a lot of people trying uh, different things, people making radios in their garages the same way as uh, internet entrepreneurs come up with new things uh, and new applications today. Um, and, and what happened, what's interesting when you talk about uh, spectrum scarcity being the issue is that one of the first things that happened when the Radio Act was passed in 1927 is a lot of those early radio entrepreneurs had their licenses taken away. Uh, you had an immediate uh, sloughing off of uh, uh, hundreds of, of radio stations um, that uh, had previously been operating. And so what you really had was a regime in which those who were fortunate enough to get licenses really prospered because uh, they were able to then monopolize that frequency to the exclusion of others in a regulated system and not one in which they had necessarily been developing the resource on their own before that. So we might have seen more innovation such as we had with the internet, which we'll yeah. get into later once I move down my timeline. Sure. Um, but you also had things, not you know, censorship issues or concerns not related to you know, spectrum scarcity. You also had Orson Welles's famous, uh, what was it, War of the Worlds. 1938 War of the Worlds broadcast. In the War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Where this new technology and people's um, unfamiliarity with it created panic. Right, you would call it fake news today. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was an entertainment show uh, that uh, regular show that or Orson Welles did in which he did a Halloween special in which he dramatized H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds uh, and um, uh, panic ensued. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied. And then uh, there were calls after that for some, some more regulation. 
There, there were, but radio was already a highly regulated medium. One of the things that existed in the 1927 Radio Act that was replicated in the 1934 Communications Act were the prohibition on any utterance of indecent words. And so um, that was uh, very tightly controlled. Which brings us up to George Carlin and his seven well, dirty words. Even before George Carlin, if you look yeah. at the early radio days, you saw some applications of that. I mean, one of my favorite stories involves um, uh, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy and Mae West. Now, for younger listeners to a podcast, you might not know who these people were, but Mae West was a, a very sultry actress who had a seductive voice uh, and was known for um, double entendres involving sex. Uh, Edgar Bergen was a ventriloquist, and his uh, dummy was called Charlie McCarthy. Tell me, Miss West, have you ever found the one man in your life that you could really love? Sure, lots of times. And there was a particular radio show in which um, Charlie McCarthy played Adam to Mae West's Eve, and uh, she would uh, say things like, why don't you come out to my place, big boy, and I'll let you play in my woodpile. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, suggestive things like that, yeah. which drew a number of complaints to the NBC radio network. Uh, the FCC sent a letter of admonition to NBC saying that while Mae West might not have used any indecent words per se, her intonation was troublesome. And so uh, even having the wrong inflections uh, could be seen as perhaps being indecent back in 1938. Yeah, it's hard to imagine how you even set up a regime to police that sort of thing when it's inflections that are... Well, and you get the same thing with double entendre yeah. and, and, uh, and words sarcasm. that can mean one thing. Well, and sarcasm. Well, I mean, well, take George Carlin, and we'll get to, to George Carlin and his seven dirty words in a minute. But, you know, one of the things that Carlin would say is... Uh, you can uh, prick your finger, but don't finger your prick. Uh, and so he would play with the English yeah. language and talk about these sorts of double entendres that can mean many things. But that if you have a regulated system, ambiguity can be very dangerous. And, and, and mistaken meanings can be very dangerous. And we get, yeah. You know, the more things change, the more things say, stay the same, moving on to TV and then to cable. Yeah. Um, you know, later in the century, you've built a lot of your career surrounding litigation on behalf of media companies and, and, and the cable space yeah. as, as well. Um, what sort of challenges did cable, specifically the, the vehicle of cable, not the broadcast networks, but what, what sort of you know, challenges that pose from a First Amendment perspective? Well, the easiest way to say it is tits in the living room. Yeah. Right. I mean, for the same reason that um, broadcasting had long been regulated, cable came along, and for the first time you could see uncut movies in your own home. Uh, It came along around the same time that VCRs first became a commercial possibility, and so that was another way in which people were seeing uncut films, although there there wasn't a huge library of films uh, available on on, um, uh, videotape at the time. Um, but all of these things were happening at the same time, and they all came along at a time in which the law was still really just developing. Now, keep in mind that the FCC formalized its indecency standard, even though it had existed in the statute that had been passed by Congress in the 30s for all that time, the FCC itself had never really said what the standard was for what was an indecent word. It was really just kind of a, a subjective feel more than anything else. 
And so, as it even as it even is when you have standards, <laughs> well, that is the problem with yeah. this a standard in this area. Um, and it's not even a you know it when you see it kind of thing. It, it's really you sort of know it when your constituents yell at you kind of thing. Um, and and so, you know, obscenity law was just developing through the, the from the late fifties through the nineteen seventies, and that's when the FCC decided to get into the act and say, well, now that the Supreme Court is trying to define obscenity, why don't we come up with a definition of indecency, which is something like obscenity light, uh, but not even that really. Uh, and so, in the early nineteen seventies, as radio stations, a lot of campus radio stations were beginning to push the boundaries a little bit. The FCC came up with their own definition of what they thought indecency was based on, loosely, the Supreme Court's definition of uh, of obscenity. And that's when George Carlin did his routine called the seven dirty words or the words you could never say on television. And all I could think of was shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. Which were actually words that were never proscribed explicitly, if I'm not well, mistaken. Well, not until he used the, the seven <laughs> words. And, and that's the weird thing, because... <laughs> it this is, is him just coming up with seven words that probably... Well, right. I mean, he came up with seven words that he thought would be funny, uh, but also words that would pretty certainly would, would get banned uh, if, if uh, had the FCC had to rule on them, uh, with one exception that I'll get to in a minute. But uh, anyway, he did this, this routine, The Seven Dirty Words, which was really, in his tradition of, of humor, an exploration of meanings in the English language and how they change and how they can be ambiguous and how they can be funny. And, and it was really just a hilarious routine. He actually had dozens of different variations on the routine that yeah. expanded over time. Uh, but he had one in particular that was played on a New York City um, radio station, Pacifica Radio. And the FCC got a complaint because of it, and uh, then they decided they would From use— From a father whose son was in the car. Well, some... yes. <laughs> as it turns out, the father happened to be the head of morality and media in, oh. in New York. Whether or not his son was actually in the car at 2 in the afternoon on a school day, anybody <laughs> can guess. And to tune in a, a radio station that required, back when you had a radio dial, required something of a safe cracker's touch to be able to get that on, on the radio. But in any event— the complaint went to the FCC. They felt duty-bound to uh, say whether or not this was indecent. And so, and, and, and this monologue of George Carlin's, which had been played as part of a larger program about uses of the English language, was then judged to be indecent. What is ironic about that is that George Carlin's pronouncement that these are words you could never say on the radio became a self-fulfilling prophecy meaning that he is the probably the first stand-up comic ever to create a legal standard. Uh, the seven dirty words that he used in that monologue for about nine years became the de facto standard at the FCC. It would only enforce complaints if they used one of the words on that list. Yeah, and the, that case went all the way up to the Supreme Court where ultimately the free speech side lost out. Well, it did. It was kind of a weird case in a lot of ways uh, because it didn't involve anyone actually being punished for use of the Carlin monologue. It was a letter that the FCC sent out, much like the Mae West, Charlie McCarthy letter to NBC, that basically was a letter to be put in the radio station's file that if they had further troubles, it could have implications for their license. But no one was fined. No one's license was taken away. But it was still enough of a threat, a future threat, 
to the license that the courts felt they could rule on it. And it did go to the, the uh, Supreme Court, which held that, uh, that the use of that standard in this limited context did not violate the First Amendment. It was a very limited holding, and one in which the FCC promised both to the Court of Appeals and then to the Supreme Court that it would use it in a very restrained and limited way. And a lot of the argument, at least perceived argument on my part, for this sort of heavy-handed approach to what you can and can't say is that uh, frequency scarcity or spectrum scarcity. But you don't have that, for example, with things like cable. Well, but that's the interesting thing. I mean, the, the justification that the FCC used for the indecency rules wasn't so much the spectrum scarcity. That's the justification they used for other rules and for having their licensing regime. But when it came down to the indecency rules, what they said was, we're able to regulate this because radio and television are different from other media in that you can't really avert your eyes. If you're listening to a radio show, this comes on suddenly. It is a pervasive medium, and there's no way to screen out what children shouldn't hear from others. And so because of that, the FCC can have some limited regulations that it applies. And so it was upheld for that limited purpose. And also, unlike obscenity, which if language is considered to be obscene, it is illegal. It falls off the edge of the First Amendment earth for all practical purposes. If it's indecent, all the FCC said was you can require that it be after hours, after the time in which children are likely to be in bed. And uh, if if something happens on a live radio broadcast or it's fleeting or inadvertent, we don't consider that to be an actionable violation. We're really only in talking about what they described the Carlin monologue as verbal shock treatment done intentionally and done at a time when children are likely to be in the audience. And so that was what they were trying to do with indecency. But of course, as time went on, the FCC got a little more carried away with it. Yeah, well, I have to ask you about this because you were involved in the litigation surrounding the, the Janet Jackson nipplegate. Yes. Right. Where, so you're talking about, you know, children unintentionally seeing things that their parents might not want them to see. I mean, that is the definition. Right. Uh, right. Right. So, I mean, what's the argument there? <laughs> well, a little bit of background first. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, when the um, the George Carlin case uh, went to uh, the Supreme Court, the FCC versus Pacifica Foundation. Uh, that was based on whether or not the FCC had any authority at all to regulate indecency. Now, at the time, and people don't realize this, but at the time, the FCC lost the case in the Court of Appeals. Uh, Pacifica Radio appealed to the the, the, uh, D.C. Circuit, and the D.C. Circuit said, no, the First Amendment doesn't permit this. And so the FCC fully expected to lose the case, so much so that the Solicitor General refused to defend the FCC in the Supreme Court. The FCC had to send one of its own lawyers to the Supreme Court to argue the case, who then surprisingly won. But in the course of all of these arguments that the FCC expected to lose, it issued another ruling that said, we only are going to enforce this on a very narrow and limited basis. We're not going to enforce it against fleeting expletives. We're not going to enforce it against unintentional broadcasts. We're only going to to enforce it when you really is intentional and and very um, hardcore. Uh, That was the regime that existed for a long time until, again, you have recurring waves of political pressure that happen over time to force the FCC to have a more pro-enforcement attitude or a um, uh, a more lax attitude. 
in the late 80s, there was a push to have the FCC enforce uh, things more strictly. And so it adopted what it called its generic enforcement policy, which said, we're not going to limit this just to the Carlin seven words. We're going to enforce it against broader words. But still, we're not going to enforce it against fleeting expletives or unintentional broadcasts or anything like that. Then we come to the Super Bowl. And that sort of brought us to another cycle in which policymakers were pushing the FCC to enforce the rules in a more uh, rigorous way. And so when you had the Super Bowl happen... What year was this? This was uh, 2004, uh, February of 2004, the last uh, few seconds of the Super Bowl halftime show involved a number by Janet Jackson uh, performing with Justin Timberlake. And at the end of the song... Uh, the uh, the last line of the song is going to have you naked by the end of this song. He reaches over and tugs at part of her bustier, and it comes off, revealing her breast for nine sixteenths of a second. Now, and she had a pasty over her nipple. Uh, it was a a piercing, but at the time there was some controversy over just what it was. Uh. But given the fact that it was so fleeting. Um, People really didn't know what they saw. And unintentional on on, the, on behalf of the broadcaster. Well, that was, that was part of the question. I mean, the yeah. FCC, within 24 hours, uh, sent uh, CBS a letter demanding an explanation, a letter of inquiry, and wanted all kinds of information. Uh, I uh, worked for CBS, uh, or I, I was engaged by CBS to do the investigation into the Super Bowl incident. Uh, and then defended them after the FCC decided to issue a $550,000 fine for that. One of the things that uh, we found in the investigation, and uh, you know, there was really never any, any question about this after the, the facts were presented to the FCC, is that this was not something that was planned or known by CBS in advance. Instead, it was something that Janet Jackson and her choreographer uh, sprung on Justin Timberlake at the last minute. And even then, it's really doubtful that there was the intention that uh, Janet Jackson's breast be bared during the, the thing. There, there was, uh, if you go back and look at any video of that, you'll see that uh, this outfit she's wearing has this sort of red frilly, uh, frilly lace under the, the bustier that uh, Probably the intent was to have that still there, uh, still intact. But this is why you you rehearse live TV, right, so that mistakes like this don't happen. Uh, this was a last-minute thing that they, they cooked up, and as a consequence, um, uh, it went wrong. Um, but it was, as, as I say, it was never either known or intended by, by CBS. We, pro- we provided the FCC with all of the information, including uh, videotape of the dress rehearsals, uh, the shooting scripts, everything, and and there was nothing that that suggested that this was ever known or planned. Uh, that didn't matter, however, to the FCC because it was being pushed by Congress to get into a more enforcement-minded mode at the time, and so they issued their fine. And then we went through about eight years of litigation, um, up to the Court of Appeals twice, uh, up to the Supreme Court, although the the court denied review. Uh, and um, in the end, uh, the FCC had to pay CBS back the $550,000. That's uh, quite a part of sports history you've uh, created for yourself. Uh, <laughs> but I want to move here as we're 
reaching the latter half of this interview to talk, about, of course, about the internet because yes. that seems to be an outlier in this. Yeah. In this is that we've had all this technology and you've had quick moves to regulate it, but the internet you never didn't really get that. Right. And why is that? Well, and actually, even before we get to the internet, you've you've mentioned cable a couple of times, and and I, I haven't directly answered those <laughs> questions, but uh, it, it's an important. Um, point to look at uh, before we get to the internet, because what you see is uh, sort of a, a, a hesitancy by the Supreme Court, or by the lower courts for that matter, to really embrace new technologies as they come out. We've certainly seen that with broadcasting, with the indecency regulations and so on. Uh, those indecency regulations are still uh, intact, uh, although uh, I think they're on very constitutionally shaky ground. When cable came out, and, and for the first time you had uncut movies in the living room, you had uh, attempts by various levels of government to try and regulate that as if it were television, as if it were the same thing, but because it didn't use the electromagnetic spectrum in the same way, because it was a hardwired connection to the home, so that you couldn't use this, this, this frequency scarcity justification, and because you could also have parental controls on cable that didn't exist at the time for over-the-air television the early cases all decided that cable didn't fall under the same regime as broadcasting. And so the indecency rules that existed for broadcasting couldn't really exist for cable. Mm -hmm. um, and you were part of the litigation surrounding well, that as well. I argued a case at the Supreme Court uh, in 1999, um, United States versus Playboy Entertainment Group, and it was the first case to establish that cable television does have the same First Amendment rights as, as um, uh, traditional media. Now, that was sort of in the process of uh, movement toward what happened with uh, the Internet. Because, as a matter of fact, that, that case involved a provision of the same act that included the Communications Decency Act, which was the first attempt by Congress to regulate the Internet by imposing broadcast-style indecency rules on the Internet. They were all part of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. It included that provision. It included the provision that regulated Playboy. And so a series of cases were launched by that 1996 Act that led to courts really beginning to grapple with that technology issue. Are we going to treat these newer technologies the same way that we do broadcasting? Uh, and before that, every other new technology had lagged behind in First Amendment protection. As we mentioned earlier, cinema, it took decades to, to catch up. Broadcasting still has never caught up. Cable was in this sort of gray area until finally the Supreme Court ruled. And so now we have the Internet. And the Internet comes along as a totally new phenomenon, something that we had never seen the likes of before. You have, for the first time in human history, a global medium of communication that is totally democratic, and that is anyone can be a speaker to a global audience. And you then have Congress, in its very first statement on what it wants to do with the Internet, say, we want to treat it like radio and television, and we want to have these kinds of content controls on the Internet. And so it presented the Supreme Court with both a unique challenge and a unique opportunity. And I'm very happy to say uh, the Supreme Court and the lower courts that looked at this rose to that challenge and said, for the first time in our history, that when a new technology came along, it was going to be protected to the full extent of the First Amendment, the same as traditional media, and we're not going to take decades trying to work out some level of protection, as had been the case with other new technologies. So what do you think the Internet might look like now if government—one of the unique things um, 
that happened surrounding this debate about what to do with the internet is that, you know, websites and internet service providers wouldn't be responsible for some of the content posted by um, some of their subscribers or um, the participants in the website. And that gave the internet a lot of flexibility to play around with content and to allow right. people to use their voices. And you don't have that sort of situation in all countries. In China, for example, ISPs can be responsible for um, what their users post on a website. Right. Well, there are a couple of questions embedded in there. And yeah. one is um, what the internet would look like if the Communications Decency Act had been upheld. Now, I should be clear, there are various sections of the Communications Decency Act. The indecency regulations, the content controls, were struck down. There was another aspect of the Communications Decency Act that was almost an accidental part uh, that was adopted for a couple of reasons, one of which it was proposed as an alternative to the, uh, the um, content regulations, and that was Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act that really just said that online platforms can adopt their own standards and they can police their own sites, but they are not going to be held responsible for content posted by third parties. In a way, that implemented really understandings of First Amendment law that would exist even if they had not adopted that, that provision. But be that as it may, Congress sort of accidentally gave birth to a lot of Internet freedom. Yeah, well, I imagine with social media where that's absolutely. all that they do is they absolutely. allow users to post on their web. If Facebook was responsible for everything that everyone posted, I mean, they, have, they would police their site very carefully. They wouldn't yeah. allow anything to be posted that might lead to possible liability. Yeah, mm-hmm. Section 230 has been a, a, a boon. To, to internet freedom. And there are other countries, as you know, that, that don't um, provide that kind of immunity for third-party speech. Uh, but separately, there's this question of what would the internet look like if Congress had tried to, or and the court had permitted Congress to regulate content in the way that it wanted. And I, I think you would see a couple of things happening. One is I think you would see a lot of the mainstream sites, a lot of the commercial sites being a lot more circumspect about what they have. Some are anyway. They adopt their own editorial policies, and they have the right to adopt yeah. their own editorial policies. Um, but you would also see a lot of, uh, I, I'd say, guerrilla tactics online uh, in that uh, governments have only a limited ability to regulate this, this medium partly because it's a global medium and partly because just its very nature was designed to prevent censorship. Uh, John Gilmore, one of the founders of EFF, very famously said that the Internet treats censorship like system damage and routes around it. Um, and, And that's really true in that you really can't stop speech once it is out on the Internet. Now, one thing that's also true is that while governments might not be able to prevent speech, they can stop speakers. And so if you can make something a crime, you can put the, uh, the source of that information behind bars, assuming you have the jurisdiction and can catch them. Yeah. But that's where you have uh, acts of civil dis- disobedience like WikiLeaks and uh, uh, like Snowden. But you know, there's a lot of news outlets that aren't immune from this sort of speech policing on, the, on behalf of for lack of a better phrase, busybody bureaucrats, <laughs> such as Preet Bahara, Bahara um, the former district attorney in Manhattan who went after Reason Magazine or Reason.com for one of something one of its commenters said about a judge, right? Right, right. And well, I mean, you always have um, go- government officials 
exerting authority to the extent that they are allowed to or think they are allowed to, which is why the protections of Section 230 and why the protections of the First Amendment are so important, because that allows you to put a check on that kind of overreaching. But it, it's also why it's so important to maintain the level of protection that we, we currently enjoy in this country, uh, um, because without that, uh, you have very little check on overreaching unless you're willing to be a fugitive, <laughs> unless yeah, you're yeah. willing to, to willingly break the law. Yeah. Uh, social media was something that grabbed headlines in the middle of the, the aughts, you know, around 2006, 2007, when Facebook was really gaining steam. But it doesn't seem like there's been a separate push to regulate social media. It's sort of been captured under the umbrella of the Internet. Uh, but now you have a, maybe a little bit more of that when people talking about this fake news that's spreading over Facebook, for example. Well, and that's already starting in Europe, where you're having European regulators talking about uh, having standards for what is real news and what is fake news. Uh, I think we get along just fine without having a ministry of truth. Um, but uh, it is a problem, but it's a problem that really can't be resolved by uh, governmental regulation. Uh, I, I don't know how you would have a regime to regulate what is real news and what is fake news without destroying freedom of the press. Yeah. The, this idea that something needed to be done to regulate the Internet after it first came about um, – is something that we see on college campuses all the time, this, this idea that administrators feel as though they need to do something if there's a controversy or if there is. <laughs> we always say one in ten, there's one in ten campuses that have free speech zones. Uh, back in 2013, it was one in six, so we're, we're doing better. Uh, but for a lot of these campuses that have these free speech zones, when we make the argument that they, the First Amendment demands that they get rid of it if it's on a public university campus, they say, well, how are we going to control what's happening on our campus? <laughs> uh, and I, you know, we make the argument. Well, you know, there's most campuses don't have these free speech zones, and the sky hasn't fallen. So, is there the sense? What is it, on behalf of regulators or administrators, that that makes them feel as though they need to do something about how people interact with, how people talk to each other, or how they communicate with each other? Is it is it fear? Is it, um, you know, just this? that they feel like they're not doing their job if they don't do something about it? Is it, um, you know, busybodiness, consolidation I, I of power? Think, I think in some ways it's, it's kind of basic human nature. I mean, you know, people want to control their environment, and administrators really want to control their environment. Uh, if your only tool is a hammer, everything in the world looks like a nail. And so if you think that people might say something outrageous, you'll come up with regulations to prevent outrage. Of course, in the process of that, you throw out freedom, right? That <laughs> sad byproduct. But, uh, you know, I, the notion of free speech, the notion of allowing people to be free to speak their minds is not one that comes naturally to governments, and it's not one that comes naturally to a lot of people. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where we happen to have grown up in a culture in the United States where at least it's part of our heritage, it's part of the civic assumptions we um, uh, grow up with, but it's one that requires nurturing as well. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I think that we need more civics education in the early grades, and it wouldn't hurt to have even more of that even at the uh, uh, college and university level. Uh, I think we've fallen away from that because the basic concepts on which our system rests uh, have sort of fallen into um, disrepair.
Yeah. The and by way of closing up here, because I know you're busy, um, I, I, I do want to talk now about what we can see in the future. Uh, I mentioned artificial intelligence and virtual reality earlier. We're already seeing discussions about AI and freedom of speech. You might be familiar with the story about where police tried to gain access to an Amazon Alexa or an Amazon Echo. And they've not been allowed access to it. Yes. Yeah, well, it, and... and um, it sounds like Amazon just recently, maybe the past day or two, decided to release the data after right. the um, the defendant said they they could have it. Right. Essentially, um, but you know what what sort of protections does does artificial intelligence have? And especially, and this goes back, we had a conversation a while back about code. You know, is code the the computer code essentially that writes a lot of these software and hardware pro- software programs? Uh, is that free speech? I mean, is that someone's speech? Is oh, it, sure it is. is I it, mean, code is just another language. Uh-huh. And, and um, you know, the, the question comes up between source code and object code of, you know, where, whether it's speech or conduct, right? If it's, if it's object code is making something operate, uh, are you um, engaging in a speech act or is that conduct that can be regulated? Frankly, I think when you're talking about code, you're really talking about a means of communication. And to the extent the um, operation being done by a computer is itself a communicative act or or is tied to a communicative act, that that would be protected. So the question has come up, and I've worked on this in past cases as well, on whether or not uh, cryptographic uh, source code is protected because it can encrypt speech. Now, is the act of encrypting speech protected by the First Amendment? Actually, I think so, because uh, the framers also protected the right to speak anonymously. Uh, and, and so you can trace back First Amendment origins to a lot of those things. But I think the fact that we talk about new technologies all the time, whether we're talking about photography, whether we're talking about video games, whether we're talking about artificial intelligence, all of those things stem from the act of human communication. And when you do that, I think you're talking about what the First Amendment had in mind. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you... This is maybe uh, <laughs> above our level of understanding of artificial intelligence, but there's there's this difference or distinction between weak AI and strong AI. Right. Weak AI means someone coded artificial intelligence to do a very specific thing. Right. Uh, and my understanding of strong AI is that it it almost thinks you. It's code that almost thinks right. as a person. It, it becomes a separate entity and is the speech produced by that entity itself protected by the First Amendment. Right now, that's an issue that is more something for legal scholars to chew over than it is a practical legal problem. Frankly, I think if you disconnect um, uh, communication from its human origins, then uh, you have a a much more difficult time arguing that it should be protected by by the First Amendment. The question that normally raises when people think of this and they think about contemporary legal problems, they'll say, what about Citizens United and corporations being protected? The easy answer to that, of course, is that corporations are uh, accumulations of uh, an amalgamation people. of people. <laughs> yes, they are. And so, and just as people organize in a corporate form, such as through the NAACP or the ACLU or through a corporation for business purposes, uh, just as they organize for those purposes and have First Amendment rights to protect those purposes, um, the individuals who are members are all protected. If you are then talking about a corporation made up solely of robots, 
then I think you would have a very different First Amendment question, and I don't think you have a strong argument for protection. There's, so, there's some scholars, they recently wrote an article, um, a scholar out of Arizona and then uh, one out of Ohio State, and they had a third co-author, I forget where she is from, but they argue that um, current law has placed a heavy emphasis on the value of speech to listeners, and as a result, the contributions that artificial intelligence might make, artificial intelligence might make to the marketplace of ideas, might be enough to give it First Amendment protection. No, I, I read the article, and and it's it's interesting as uh, an exercise in um, trying to parse First Amendment doctrine, um, but you know I think you can only sort of do that by sort of parsing through different First Amendment theories and then attaching them in a way that are divorced, again, from their human origins. Um, so, for example, people may have a right to, to listen, but that assumes that there is a willing speaker. If the speaker is a robot, uh, you might have a different answer on whether or not the First Amendment protects it. Yeah, and that article for our listeners is called Seriously, S-I-R-I-O-U-S-L-Y 2.0, What Artificial Intelligence Reveals About the First Amendment, if anyone's interested in listening to that. And it's also important to note that there are some out there that believe that strong AI isn't even possible. Uh, um, so that's that's still an open question, or, or that it's a threat to the very uh, future of the planet. Yeah, if, yeah. If it, if it so yeah, we're we're speaking purely on the theoretical level right now. But you know, I'm sure if you would have asked people 200 years ago if some, a medium like television was possible, they right. would have said the same thing. So I try to keep an open mind. But again, that gets back to the basic question that you started with, and that is, what is the role of technology in these questions? I've always been a strong advocate that the First Amendment means what it says regardless of the technology used for communication, that it limits what government can do when it comes to regulating the ability of humans to communicate. And if that's true whether or not you use your voice or a printing press or uh, a radio uh, frequency or the Internet. Uh, but when you start having those communications happening without humans, mm -hmm. <laughs> then you have, a, I think, a very different question in terms of whether or not the First Amendment applies. And a question I'm sure many of us will continue to chew on. Absolutely. Bob, thanks for speaking with me today. Happy to. Thanks, Nico. To learn more about Bob and his work, you can visit dwt.com slash people slash Robert Revere. And to see the good work that Bob's doing with FIRE's Stand Up for Speech litigation program and protecting the free speech rights of over 250,000 students, you can visit StandUpForSpeech.com. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at Twitter.com slash Free Speech Talk, or like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash So To Speak Podcast. And on both of those pages, you can find that bonus clip of Daryl Davis talking about Chuck Berry. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at thefire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. Until next time, thanks for listening.